Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are the sovereign ruler of the universe, uh, that we call you Father, that you are strong. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of adoption, to be called your children. And Lord, now as we study your word, we ask that you would please illuminate the scripture for us, that we would see things that we didn't see before, that you would allow your word to speak to us. We know that when the Bible speaks, when scripture speaks, that you speak. And so, Lord, we ask for your help now uh, to benefit from your word. I ask, Lord, that you'd please strengthen me. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4. We'll be going through the majority of the chapter as our narrative runs through verse 31. Now, due to the nature of narrative books in the Bible, new chapters aren't always exactly breaks in a story or a new account, but they are merely divisions. They're merely divisions, which is the case with our chapter, chapter 4. And so, to use a literary term, chapter 4 begins in medius res, meaning in the midst of things. And so, because of that, it's going to be really helpful for me to give just a brief recap of what's been going on so far in this situation from chapter 3. So Peter and John decide to go to the temple for the hour of prayer, which is probably a time of sacrifices. And in the courtyard area of the temple, where the gate doors to enter was located, a lame man in his legs was sat begging for money. He was laid in that position daily. And so Peter and John pass by this man was asked for money because he was a beggar, and Peter said to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, causes this crippled man to be healed, which very quickly draws attention. And so as the people start to come to Peter, in Solomon's portico specifically, a part of the courtyard where it was supported by colonnades, colonnades were lining the courtyard temple area, Peter sees the crowd and he begins to preach to them. He begins to preach the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, as well as to repent and to understand that this Jesus, whom many there were partly responsible for for crucifying since they were at his trial, that he was God's holy one, the one whom Moses foretold of in the law. Well, that pretty much brings us right up to our chapter. That was the really fast abbreviated version of the context, but that's all you need to know. So our chapter, chapter 4, is when things begin to change. Chapter 4 records the first incident of innumerable incidents in church history with persecution. More specifically, our text highlights the power of the Holy Spirit 
in the midst of persecution in believers. And so let's read the first 12 verses to get the setting. Now as they were, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So this chapter, as I said previously, is an account that that displays the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of persecution. And I'm going to argue that in the midst of all the details of this chapter, there is something that demands our attention as the reader. And that is the boldness of Peter. So in light of Peter's boldness, I have two points for you. Point number one, the source. And point number two, the resemblance. So the following day, the two apostles were brought before a group of people that is well-deserving of our attention. And this is just where details really do matter. They were not just a few obscure men to observe the case, as if they were like volunteers for the synagogue or something. If you look at verse 5, it says there are rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Well, these are to be known as the men that composed the Sanhedrin. I'm sure many of you have heard of the word Sanhedrin. It's the Greek word for council, but that means it's the high council. Or you could even take it as the Supreme Court. There was the highest council in the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, he's referring to this kind of council when they decide to pass a judgment on you. So most scholars believe that the Sanhedrin was still ordered in this time according to the instructions given to Moses from Numbers chapter 11. The Lord gave these instructions to Moses, saying, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. So here in the Sanhedrin were seventy men, plus one being the high priest Caiaphas. But we have more than that. We have the seventy-one plus the ex-high priest 
Annas and the members of his family, whom we don't really have very much information about. And then you have the scribes. So I don't know how you've read these verses before, that maybe this was the size of like a large business meeting or something. No, this is a full-scale trial. Upwards about 80 people, and they were the most authoritative people in the nation of Israel. And since Israel was a theocracy at this time, meaning that the priests had the power over the government, the religious priests were leading the government— which is how the Lord designed Israel to be, they have the authority to exercise capital punishment. So a little over two months have passed from the time of Jesus' death to where we are in now of our account, which means that there's a very good chance that many of the council members here were at the same trial with Jesus in Luke 22. The reason why that's an issue is if this council had already condemned Jesus as a blasphemer and false messiah who is worthy of death, death, what does that mean for Peter and John who are associating themselves with him and teaching about him in the courtyard? Do you think that they'll just get a slap on the wrist and a word of disapproval? No, getting a sentence that is in line with their master is absolutely on the table. So if you're Peter and John right now, you're probably not thinking about some trivial matter, like if you left lights on in your kitchen, what that means for your electricity bill. Somewhere in your thoughts, you're thinking about your death. You're thinking about all the potential outcomes from this trial tomorrow, because right now it's not standing in your favor. And so maybe even now, Peter and John, while they were in prison, They were exhorting one another. They were speaking truths to one another about the Lord and praying, as we see them in later times. Now, before we get any further in our text, one of the glaring issues that should be mentioned, which makes this passage all the more miraculous, is thinking about how Peter dealt with interrogation previously. While this is the first time that Peter's been on trial, this is not the first time that Peter was asked about his relationship to Jesus. I'm sure I don't have to remind you about the account in Luke 22 when Peter and John were in the courtyard of the high priest, and Peter was confronted by three different people, one being a mere servant girl, a maid servant. And Peter absolutely faints in the fear of man denying the Lord. This is where Peter is interesting. He's an interesting character because in the Gospels, he seems to be the most outspoken of the disciples, the one who seems to raise his voice first. We would call this being brash. He made the dreadful mistake of rebuking the Lord, which makes this all the more surprising that Peter struggles with the fear of man. Now you'd say, well, that's the old Peter. That's the Peter before Pentecost. That's the Peter before he was born again, and to some degree, you're right. But on the other hand, when we are born again of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't just swallow up all of our sins that our flesh is inclined to, otherwise there wouldn't be any need for sanctification. And we wouldn't have all those texts talking about denying ourselves, like in Romans 13, where it says, 
make no provision for the flesh, gratifying its desires. But besides that, we also see Peter in the New Testament fall back into this same sin of the fear of man. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face because Peter used to eat with Gentiles, but once Jews came into the assembly that he was in, he stopped because it said he feared the circumcision party. So here's where the tension lies, because we see the human fragility and weakness of Peter. But the problem is, as long as you respond to the inclinations of the fear of man, you will never be a faithful witness to Christ. Even worse are its consequences. Jesus said, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And so this, this puts Peter in a pretty desperate situation. But praise be to God, the Lord does not forsake his servants or leave them up to his own power. If you remember, Jesus made a promise to the disciples for situations, especially like this one that Peter and John are in. Jesus in Luke 21 foretold of the destruction of the temple and the end times but as well as the type of situations of persecution that they'll find themselves in. He said in Luke 21, verses 12 to 15, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So the Lord makes this promise to Peter and John, and I'm going to argue that he's kept this promise before, because this promise holds similar language to the promise that the Lord gave to Moses in Exodus Moses, who, like Peter, had a negative defect, although it wasn't a sin issue or a heart issue, it was more of a personal trait. He was weak in speech. And so the Lord said to him in Exodus 3 to go to Pharaoh to free the Israelites from slavery, but Moses begged him to send somebody else. He says, I'm slow of speech and tongue. But the Lord tells him, now therefore go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And so in light of all of that, it is of no small detail that Luke tells us in verse 8 that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so let's think about what that means. When we consider about people being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit using people for a specific task, We think of people in the Old Testament like Samson, how the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and it said that he went down and struck the men of Ashkelon. Or when it said the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul when he heard the news about the Ammonites and what they did, and so he took action against them. In the New Testament, one of the main reasons the Holy Spirit was given to the church was for the ability to witness The promise comes from Jesus in Acts chapter 1 when he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so one of the ways that the Holy Spirit was manifested goes back to Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when it said they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in that context, and for the early church, the Holy Spirit filled the disciples, and they were each given the utterance of tongues to speak different languages because of the various people groups that were assembled there. And so this miraculous phenomenon drew the attention of the peoples and verified their message. So that is one way that the Holy Spirit was manifested. It was for the gift of tongues. But another way the Holy Spirit is manifested is in the boldness in an individual and their message. So let me explain to you what boldness means. Well, the word which is used in verse 13 comes from two Greek words. The word for every or all, and then the word for speech, and then they just jammed it together, and so it could technically be read as all speech, every speech, but most of the times it's translated as freedom of speech, which other translations have used for this passage here. And since it's been used in high-risk circumstances, it carries that connotation of confidence and courage and power, which it very much means. One of the most common ways the, the word is used for in the New Testament is when someone is telling something, something plainly or openly, without concealment, without ambiguity, not leaving anything out. And so the Jews in John chapter 10, they told Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And they used that word for boldness. One of the ways to contrast this concept of being plain in speech is when people start using platitudes. Maybe you've done this before. I know I'm guilty of doing it. But it's when we start talking like, well, nobody's perfect. We're human. Or say you're in a competition and your team loses dreadfully, and you say, eh, we're all winners. That's the idea of a platitude. It's being reserved in speech. It's concealing truth, and it's not direct. In fact, platitudes can be kind of dangerous sometimes in high-profile situations because they could be a mechanism for saving our own skin, if we're honest. Just imagine if Peter used platitudes here, like, I really think you guys might have dropped the ball here, but hey, it is what it is. But that's the opposite of what he does. He tells them exactly their problem. He says that this man was healed by Jesus whom you crucified. You rejected him. He was the Messiah, the promised cornerstone. And that's what's so risky about being plain and open with people because it falls on the hearer, the listener. If they take it negatively, that could very well mean a negative result for you. Point number one, the source. Point number two, the resemblance. Let's read verses 13 to 16. 
Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing besides them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For without a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So the first thing I'd like to point out to you, which goes back to the promise that Jesus made to the disciples, that he would give them a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to contradict. Well, we see this perfectly at work here. In fact, it's fulfilled. The word for contradict that Jesus uses in that promise is the same exact Greek word found at the end of verse 14 for the phrase, they had nothing to say in opposition. They had nothing to say to contradict what was said by Peter when they saw the man who was healed. Now what was striking about Peter's message to the council was his reasoning from Scripture. His confident ability to make theological arguments like the ones he made, even citing specific messianic texts. That should have only been characterized by those who were a teacher of the law. And so the council probably would have taken inquiry of their background because what was so troubling about, about the council was that Peter and John had no formal rabbinical training. The educational system at that time consisted of being in personal and frequent study with a teacher of the law, both in private and in group settings, which we see Paul allude to, that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law. Gamaliel was a well-known teacher who very might have well been in this council since he appears in the, chap- in the chapter following. But the council also perceived that Peter and John were idiotai, the Greek word for common, which is where we've unfortunately received our English word for idiot. I say it's unfortunate because our use of that word, which is almost associated with being slanderous in regards to somebody's intelligence, uh, does not reflect the use of the word for the Greek culture. It means to be a private person. It's used for a private individual who does not have a public office, either priestly, political, or even social, like an aristocrat. Basically, they were saying that they had no business talking to them like this. They were laymen. They were amateurs. And so the sense in which it says that they recognized that they had been with Jesus can be taken in two ways. Well, one, if you remember from the Gospel of John, that it said that one of the disciples was known to the high priest, being Annas at at that time. And it was almost for sure that it was John who was referring to himself when he said that. And so since it's only been a few months, the sense could be that Annas sees John and he says, oh, I remember that you are with Jesus. But... The other sense where it seems to have the emphasis lie on is in what Peter and John displayed. The council sees the boldness of these two uneducated laymen, and they can only reconcile this phenomenon with what they saw in Jesus when he taught in public, when he stood before the council. 
Jesus himself was uneducated and common, yet possessed the greatest power and ability to make theological arguments. Nobody could withstand or even oppose what he said. In fact, these descriptions of Peter and John that the council saw are almost verbatim about what was said about Jesus. The Pharisees marveled at Jesus' teaching, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And people were astonished, for it says, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so what the council is recognizing is that these two individuals are walking in his footsteps. They've been discipled by him. They see that somehow he has worked in their life. That's the main point. So when you are bold for the sake of Christ, when you boldly proclaim the gospel, when you boldly teach the truth, you are like Jesus. You resemble Jesus. Jesus did that better than anyone else. Don't think you need a greater example on boldness than Jesus. Jesus was the most bold person who's ever lived. He spoke the most plainly, the most openly, in the most unreserved way. He didn't care what anybody thought or what it might cost him. He told the Pharisees in John chapter 8, you are of your father, the devil. And unless that you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's a flip side to that truth. The problem is that people didn't like Jesus. They rejected him. And so that means people will not like you and reject you when you are bold. I mean, shouldn't the council believe the message after seeing this phenomenon? Shouldn't they maybe reconsider who Jesus is after they've seen proof after proof after proof? Not even to mention that Caiaphas, who was high priest that time, prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. But instead, they chose not to believe them, just like they chose not to believe Jesus when he was on trial. And so that brings me to a matter that I need to address. There might be some of you in this room who are not a Christian, and that's very simply because you don't claim to be. You know you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here because you were invited from a friend and you were told that there's going to be food afterwards, and that is true. Well, I'm glad you are here, and I'm even impressed that you've listened to me for this long But tonight's message has been about boldness. It's been about how Peter and John spoke on behalf of the Lord clearly, and so that subject's not really for you. It doesn't benefit you. This has really only been for Christians. But tonight you're also hearing in our passage about Jesus, how he's done miracles, proving that he's divine, and how supposedly he rose from the dead after being crucified. So there is something in this message for you. And that's exactly what the council did. And so I would ask you that you do not reject Jesus like they did. In fact, your greatest need tonight is to put your faith in Jesus because the problem is that you have sinned against a holy God. 
And since the Bible says that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, you will stand before God and be judged. But since God does not acquit the guilty, if you are guilty and have your sins unforgiven, then you will suffer the just wrath of God in hell. But God is a merciful God. He doesn't delight in the death of anyone. And so he sent Jesus to be a sacrifice for your sin. He bore the wrath of God on that tree because Jesus took the punishment that you deserved. And so I tell you what Peter told the council, there is no other name for you to be saved by. If you place your faith in Christ, you will be forgiven. Do not reject Jesus. Well, let me leave you, the rest of you, uh, with an application point. And that's very clearly to pray for boldness. It's always safe to pray for the things that the apostles prayed for. And when Peter and John were released, they were released with a threat. They were threatened, probably with further imprisonment or even worse. And so they went to their friends and they prayed about it, had a prayer meeting. We'll look at verses 29 to 31. It says, they prayed, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So I wish that every time we set ourselves to open our mouths to preach the gospel, that the Holy Spirit would be manifested in boldness and that the fear of man would just really not be a factor. But we know that is not our experiences individually. But we also know that that wasn't the experience of the apostles either. Paul said to the Corinthians that I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And the Lord even appeared to Paul in Acts chapter 18, telling him to not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And so elsewhere, Paul is asking for prayers for the be able to be able to be preaching the gospel with boldness. The same thing that Peter and John are requesting here. And so maybe that you and I don't have this looming threat of persecution, imprisonment, or being killed over our heads like they did. And so praise God for the ability to preach the gospel in a nation with relative freedom. But even if we don't have that immediate threat, the dangers that they had, the dangers that Peter and John had, and really any disciple in any persecuted country, is still the same danger that we face, and that is to deny the Lord. If it's not a trial that we be put on, maybe it's at work or at school or in our family when somebody asks you if you're a Christian and you just realize that you care way too much about what that person thinks. You realize that you wouldn't be accepted if you said that you were a Christian. Maybe it's at a time that catches you off guard like Peter in the courtyard. And so you must pray for boldness. There's also the danger of watering down the gospel 
making it soft and palatable to people, and so you end up distorting the love of God because you just want this person to know how much God loves them, but there's nothing in your message about repentance. There's nothing to turn for, turn from. It's all stemming from the fear of man. There's also dangers that spreads into our counsel, the counsel that we give to Christians. And so I'm not saying that every time you counsel another Christian, it has to be something difficult for them to hear, or they have to leave being burdened or crying. But the counsel that you give sometimes might be a call from God to be direct and plain and clear. Maybe it's a subject that could be difficult and challenging for them to hear, but instead you say things that are vague. You're not direct. And you end up not even being helpful, so the Lord doesn't even use your counsel. And so for that, you also must pray for boldness. And so, brothers and sisters, if we're honest, maybe there is more of Peter in us than we care to admit. Peter before Pentecost, Peter in the courtyard, than there is of Jesus. And when we think about it, we've blown great opportunities that the Lord has given us to witness. But instead, we've responded with cowardice. We see that we, like Peter, are prone to yield to the fear of man. Maybe when we think about people in our lives with whom we need to share the gospel, think, gospel with, we just think it's just way too hard. There's no way. There's always those people that are off limits. But I urge you, to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is given the name the Helper. And so I urge you to pray for boldness. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we have examples in Scripture of people that are so like us, just raw examples like Peter in whom we find similarities in ourselves, Lord. We care about what people think. We're not as strong as we think we are, and we fear men. And so, Lord, I just ask for all of us who are Christians, Lord, for those of of us who are your children, that you would please fill us with the Holy Spirit that you would provide us with opportunities to stand for Christ, but that we would do so with boldness, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that you just continue to sanctify us, mold us into the image of your Son. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.